You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are on the Alto de Piornal. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Friba. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am on, I think he said on, the Alto del Piornal, high above the Valle Ferreza or Cherry Valley. More about that in a moment once I've introduced one of our guests. Now, in fact, multiple guests tonight. In fact, it's a packed show. Lots of people appearing on the podcast tonight. So let's get to it. Joining me today from Villefranche-sur-Mer, basically Monaco for a fraction of the price, but several multiples of the tax. It's current AG2R Citroën professional veteran of four Vueltas a España, also a Tour de Suisse stage winner, 2017 US National Road Race champion. He is Michigan's, not Michigan's, Michigan's only true sporting icon, a man that makes Irving Magic Johnson look like a $50 an hour kid's entertainer with tricks from a Christmas cracker. He is not afraid to call a spade a spade, a mystifying slow puncture, a mystifying slow puncture. It's lucky Larry Warbass. Hey guys, good to be here. Guys, well we'll get the second guest in a minute. Larry, <laughs> any, anything to say from the outset tonight? Any apologies to issue for the, to the nation of Belgium? Not, not at all. I mean, I mean... No, I didn't didn't run into any issues, so that's good. I, I <laughs> no hate luckily, mail from uh, your not teammate. Too many Belgians listen to the podcast, so that's good. Okay, okay, let's keep it that way. <laughs> also joining us tonight from Soya in Mallorca, long-serving Eurosport cycling commentator, the multilingual voice of cycling, and owner of multiple voices, depending on whether he's commentating, podcasting, or belting out Sting's greatest hits in the shower. Yes, he really does do that, I can confirm. It's Accrington Cricket Club's Tutankhamun of Trundle, a rabbit with numerous habits about which I could regale you with numerous stories as his former flatmate. It's Rob Hatch. With every breath you'll take, that is getting even better (laughs) every single day. Wow, what an intro, what an intro. I think you've won the podcast awards already. Well, as explained to Brian Nygaard to, um, yesterday, in the absence of Primoz Roglic, in the absence of any great suspense about who's going to win this Vuelta España, and my aim is to make this podcast 95% intros and 5% other content. So um, we're doing pretty, pretty well so far. However, today was exciting, wasn't it, chaps? It was a bit of a barnstormer of a stage, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I don't know. That was pretty cool. It was nice to see like full gas racing from start to finish today. An absolutely tremendous stage. And I think the the thing to, to underline from me straight away was the belief still, because you've had these people, even yourself, Daniel, at times, doubting Remco Evenepoel. Can he last? Can he do it? Hang on. Of course, we're all on a, on a voyage of I'm discovery. Voice, Come I'm on. The voice of, I'm the voice of reason and diplomacy. It's the guests that say that come sorry, out these sorry, controversial sorry. statements and allegations. I was trying to maybe save someone's skin over in Denmark. When I saw his performance today, I thought about you, Daniel. Just, you know, your blood in the water, blood in the water, blood in the water. And so maybe you need to make an apology to the nation of Belgium. I don't know. (laughs) Well, okay, let's get to apologies or challenge. I'm going to challenge you now, Larry. It's not about the Vuelta España. Before we get on to the serious business. Um, Today, we're in a place called, um, well, Alto del Piornal. Today I discovered that it's in, well, as, as I said in the intro, it's, it's in a valley or overlooks the Cherry Valley, in effect. And, of course, this ties back to Traverse City. I've pronounced that wrong as well. Remind us, exactly. Travis? Tra- Traverse, Traverse City? City. Traverse City. Which, 
which you claimed the other day was the world capital of cherries. However, I think Piornal has a very convincing case to make. And um, one, one to two million kilos of cherries produced every year here. They have a fiesta del cerezo en flor, the, the, the party of the or fiesta of the um, cherry trees in bloom. Um, no, mm. what, what, what's the competition? The, the cherry pit spitting competition? Cherry pit spitting contest, yeah. yeah. N- none of that, unfortunately. But, uh, um, well, obviously not the world capital of cherries then. They don't, e- they don't even know the game. You're standing by your story on that front. Absolutely. Well, talking of stories, Absolutely. talking of stories, we are going to get in a minute to the stage summary time trial. However, this morning in Trujillo, I mentioned yesterday that I was looking forward to seeing the, the Plaza Mayor. I'm not sure if it's called the Plaza Mayor, the main square anyway, which is a beautiful, well, it's not a square, it's more of a circle. And I likened it yesterday to, to the Piazza del Campo in Siena, really one of the most impressive squares in Spain. But we didn't get to see it because the team buses were down the bottom of the hill. However, there was a lot of talk today, obviously, about what might happen in the stage. And, well, following on from last night's podcast, in which we somehow cobbled together, conjured up some kind of convincing hypothesis about UAE Team Emirates and what they would do today. And perhaps Joao Almeida even winning the Vuelta a España. Following on from that, we made a beeline for Juan Ayuso, who, of course, started the day in third place on general classification. And this is what he said about what they were planning today. I think now the decisive days have started in the last week. Uh, for sure, it's going to be hard. Yesterday already in a climb that wasn't super tough, we went full gas. So today, which which is much harder, and I think it's going to be a brutal battle. Of course, I'm ambitious, and of course, I would love to, to be first or second. But you also have to be realistic, no? And you have to know that the time gaps in front of me are, are, are much bigger than the ones behind me, you know? The, the ones that are trying to take the podium off me are, are just 30 seconds behind me, which is not, a, not much, you know? So, of course, you race to win, but also at this stage you have to be realistic and, yeah, and more try to defend my podium. Team with me is something vital for, to manage to be in the first places in, in, in the race. So yeah, I hope um, yeah the team really helps me. That's the intention, and, and we'll give our best. You also the team with two cars to play, and then you and Almeida. Can you use that for anything? Yeah, for sure. You'll see. <laughs> you have plans? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Juan, <laughs> can I just ask about the significance of that necklace? Yeah. Oh, this was uh, when I was born. My grandmother. Uh, it was a gift from my grandmother, and it always stays with me. So, chaps, that sounded like a battle cry, mm. and. What we got from UAE was, well, it was pretty aggressive. It was inventive. They looked as though they used their resources pretty well. There was no real sign. I don't think maybe you chaps will disagree of this friction we've, we've been, been hearing about between Juan Ayuso and Joao Almeida. I thought they, they rode fairly harmoniously today. But the Almeida attack was certainly one feature of the stage. And, well, let's hear about what else happened today larry you're the man with the aerofoil helmet you have taken on the responsibility of doing the el resumen del día a contrarreloj the stage summary time trial well larry i have my stopwatch in front of me you have acquitted yourself extremely well so far in this vuelta españa with these um, 90 second time trials can you do it again today it's a tough one it might be the toughest one of the vuelta a lot to pack in if you don't name every single person that was in a break today frankly i will be disappointed <laughs> i'm gonna count you in larry warbass you have three two one off you go 
Okay, so today was stage 18 from Trujillo to Alto del Piornal. It was 192 kilometers. And Remco Evenepoel, the red jersey, won the stage. Two seconds ahead of Enric Moss. And third was Robert Gesink out of the breakaway, or Hesink. Um, Evenepoel still has the red jersey. 207 ahead of Enric Moss and 514 ahead of Juan Ayuso. But yeah, I would say the day was marked. There was a really big breakaway, 43 men on the attack. But I would say sort of like the most exciting thing of the day was a long-range attack by Almeida, who tried to, yeah, pull some time back on the GC guys, but unfortunately in the end was unsuccessful. He, yeah, he was launched by his teammate Brandon McNulty. Some other teammates waited and paced him, um, but in the end he was caught on the final climb by the leaders behind, and that is exactly, yeah, how we ended up with that uh, podium today. And now the KOM is Richard Carapaz because uh, there was a big crash at the start that took out Jay Vine and his hopes to win the KOM jersey, which is too bad. He'll miss out on a bit of prize money there. More, more about that later. Yeah, Carlos Rodriguez um, also was in the crash, which maybe affected him. Um, he lost a little bit of time and fell from, um, he just fell at one position in GC. But yeah, that's pretty much everything. Oh, Mads Peterson's still in the sprint jersey, but we knew that, so. Right on the money, right on the dollar again, Larry. Um, fairly, as was the case yesterday with Brian Nygaard, painted in fairly impressionistic broad brushstrokes there, but we'll forgive you that. Did a, <laughs> did a pretty good job. It was a, it was a tall order. So anything to add, Rob Hatch? You've got the commentator's eye as well as the commentator's voice. Um, anything Larry missed out? Really difficult, actually, to follow the stage. I mean, just off a, a quick tangent. I mean, we go off a lot of tangents on the podcast, so why not another? Um, when you're watching the stage on the telly, I was actually, I was talking to my dad uh, on the phone, and it's so much more difficult to pick up every little single thing when you can be doing other things and you're not sat in front of a telly and concentrating and having to having to pronounce on, on whatever's happening. So I think Larry did a tremendous job there. And uh, <laughs> Thank you. I mean... Once we got into into the end there, it was almost the, the least expected day, wasn't it, for, for Movi Star? But in the final few hundred metres, it was the most expected winner, wasn't it, with Remco Evenepoel. Evenepoel amassed the, the party poopers there for Robert Hazink, who almost pulled off what I think would have been one of the most popular wins of this Welter Gents. He's, I think he's a popular guy, isn't he, Robert Hazink? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think he definitely is. Sorry, I forgot that Larry then was the authority on. Oh no, on, you can. Um, go, no, I don't know. Pe- you, you can. You can tell me what you think, but uh, but yeah. No, um, I mean it was no. Honestly, Larry, it was something that I was looking forward to. Well, I was looking forward to seeing Robert Hastings win because it was one of these. It would have been one of these great sort of swan song victories. I'm not sure actually. Maybe you chaps know how long Robert Hastings intends to carry on his career I think he's is he 35 or 36 now but I haven't heard anything to the effect that next year is going to be his last year or the year after but it would have been one of those what well, we're talking about cherries it would have been the sort of cherry on the icing mm. of the cake of Robert Hastings career wouldn't it and I think a victory that a lot of people would have been happy about I mean I was waiting mm. to speak to Teo Gegenhart at the finish and didn't manage to but it, that was in the anticipation of Hastings winning because I know that Teo and Robert Hastings train a lot together 
I mean, Robert Hazink's 36 now, Daniel. Uh, he is going to ride next year for Jumbo Visma. We don't know anything beyond that. And for people who might have come to the sport in the last few years, it's probably worth reminding everybody that this was a guy who was the big hope of Dutch cycling, wasn't he? He was going for GC prizes. He was trying to win big races. He's been in the top five on GC at the Tour de France. He's won the Tour of California 10 years ago. He's won the Tour of Oman as well. He's won both of the big one-day races in Canada as well. So back when he was oh, trying wow. to win for himself, he's got a fairly decent palmarès and also a Grand Tour stage winner at the Welter, although not on Spanish soil. He, he won on a French mountain, on a Tour mountain, when the Welter went to the Obis. So he's got a, for a helper, he's got a tremendous palmarès. We're not talking about, you know, Peter Seri, with all respect due to him, another tremendous bike rider maybe earlier in his career decided that he wasn't going to go for the big no, prize so himself. Just, just, alienate, just alienate a few more Belgium. <laughs> no, I, I'm a huge yeah. Peter Seddy fan because of the, quite, I think, quite, I would say, mature decision that he took to, to try and concentrate on being a helper because he, he was a talented guy and followed by a lot of Belgian television cameras very, very early on in his career. I think there was even um, a reality TV documentary made about Peter Seddy in his first how year. Did, how did I miss that? Um, well, probably on, on Flemish television. Um, but, yeah, I think Robert Hazing has a tremendous palmarès and we often forget, I think, what he's won when we see him riding. So, um, just proves that he's still got it. I'm also always reminded whenever someone, which nowadays occurs relatively frequently, a young rider signs a five or six or seven-year contract. I think we've seen, have we seen seven-year contracts, maybe? Um, but this is certainly a new phenomenon or a recent phenomenon in the last three or four years. We've seen these very long contracts in professional cycling. Hastings signed a five-year contract. I think it was in 2005 or six or seven, around about that time. Basically, his first contract for, or his second contract for Rabobank. They believed in him that much that they gave him a five-year contract, which was very unusual. Might even have been in uh, unprecedented then um, Chaps just looking at the GC for a day when an awful lot happened there weren't that many changes in the sense that um, there were a few guys who moved up one place Superman Lopez uh, leapfrogged Sugarman Rodriguez um, <laughs> but otherwise you have to go down a long way down to 21st place David de la Cruz um, who lost seven places on the GC but otherwise it was people gaining one losing one gaining three so not not too not not the sort of revolution that we may be expected on general classification um, Larry before we hear from a few well we hear from Robert Hastings and a few others from the finish line today just wanted to get your view on how your team and your teammate Ben O'Connor, Ben Superbock O'Connor, how they rode today. You know, I, I, I know that he, he wasn't exactly content with how his day went, but, uh, you know, I think um, Ben has, like, his own unique sort of style of, of riding, and, you know, he gets, uh, he's a little bit of a stressor, so I think that makes him attack earlier than normal or attack more often than some other guys, rather than, like, you know, you see some other guys who are super calm and calculated and wait for, like, um you know, maybe the perfect moment or whatever. But to be honest, I know, like, I think that style of racing has led Ben to become the rider he is because, like, he isn't the guy who always waits. And, you know, um, so maybe he can be from time to time overly aggressive. But, uh, yeah, I would say a lot of times it's paid off. So today it didn't pay off. But, um, you know, he didn't really lose any time. So hardly um not to the guys around him so i think uh yeah you know he he kind of he did what he had to do but I, I think you know he might be disappointed he couldn't go for the stage win but uh, it looked pretty hard to beat ramco on that last climb 
Well, chaps, as promised, let's hear from Robert Haysink, then from Joao Almeida, who, as we said, was, well, he was the main protagonist, really, of what looked as though it was going to be the, well, the, the only move, really, that looked as though it had the potential to completely turn things around on GC. And then, finally, let's hear from Ben O'Connor, and let's hear what he made of his own performance. Happy is not really the right word, I guess, but I was happy to be in the break, and I was happy until the last 200 metres, but... Uh yeah, not so happy uh, after that. Well, yeah, uh, you win some, you lose some. Uh, I was happy we could reset uh, the team, reset our uh, spirits, our mindset. We all came here to win with Primoz. And yesterday was a tough day, therefore. And I think today we showed that we had the legs to, to do something nice with the team, with him. Unfortunately, it was a great day until 200 meters ago. Oh, yeah, Grisha kept me uh, posted. And uh, I actually never looked back until I looked back at one moment and I saw a front wheel coming and then uh, I knew that... Uh, it was going to be really difficult. Well, uh, I did make it in the, in the winner's picture. So. Three years ago, I changed my, uh, my style of riding and my, my work, my training, everything to, uh, to support uh, uh, our GC uh, men. And uh, then to change back, uh, I wasn't sure I could do it. So actually, I guess I'm quite, quite happy to know that I can change back and ride for myself once again. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, there were two uh, slightly better today. So uh, yeah, that was tough to see. And uh, ah. Uh, it's also kind of nice to, to ride for victory again. I'm not going to say I'm the happiest man on the earth right, right now. Robert, it looked like one of those where maybe your feelings sort of fluctuated throughout the day. It looked like there were moments where you felt really good, moments when you were struggling a bit more. I'm kind of a diesel, so uh, if they go real fast in the beginning, I'm always struggling. And uh, I know that. I've been doing this quite some time now. And uh, But I know I'm always... Uh, at the same pace also towards the end so if i would have been not another climb i could have done it at the same pace i think no just kidding yeah we tried to put the pressure on uh, we found a good moment and we gave everything we had and i think we did some damage i mean i was hoping to yeah maybe have a little bit more room more 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 time uh, but yeah i also would know that they would not let me go very far we tried everything so we were ahead we did it perfect like we we thought so we can be proud of ourselves. It wasn't up to us to ride, but yeah, it was good actually. It was good racing today. I'm a bit pissed off to be honest because uh, I think I rode a bit stupid today and I think uh, I could have fought for the win today. So I'm not really so happy to be honest. I thought there'd be a couple more teammates to ride real hard and make it a bit more solid. But uh, in the end, it was a bit tactical at the end, but I should have waited and kept my bullets dry because I spent way too many. It was uh, nice to have a fun stage where it's a bit chaotic because uh, every other day has been a bit too simple for me. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Super Sapiens and the system of continuous glucose monitoring can help you fuel more effectively and efficiently for your event. It can help you learn about how your body responds to certain types of food, the time of day that you eat them, how your body responds to exercise, rest and even stress. All professional athletes have to take particular care about their fueling strategy before, during and after racing. And Sam Brand of Team Novo Nordisk has some golden rules and this is the first one. 
probably most important is uh, little and often, or not necessarily little, but often, you know, so uh, making sure that I graze through food. There's times where you think you're not burning any energy because you're riding easy, but you know that's constant burning energy. Thinking is burning energy, so making sure that, number one, you stay on top of eating at regular intervals. It's all about, um, and probably, I guess, a second golden rule is, is don't change what you know. Uh, you know, sometimes you go to an event for people who are signed up to something and you get given, like, uh, I don't know, a, a different brand of cereal bar, a different brand of energy drink or whatnot, but you may, might not be used to it. It's all about making sure that you've developed that sort of rapport with a, with a, with a brand, whether that's the brand that you use every day, but making sure that you know what you're putting in is something that is going to react well, so something that you've trained on. To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. El Diario Renko, the Daily Renko. I just try to enjoy it as much as possible. I think that's the most important. Uh, it's my 12th day now uh, as a leader, so that's quite a, a long period. So I, uh, we are really close to the the, the last day. So uh, I just hope to take it home for, I mean, to wear the jersey for three more days, that would be, uh, I think then it's perfect. Uh, a pretty tough and uh, yeah, tricky climb, uh, around 90 k's to go, so I expect the race will be quite open from there on. And then uh, I expect uh, a long final, but like I said, the final climb is not super hard. It's more about the, uh, yeah, uh, slipstream also. So uh, I think it's gonna be a bit of, uh, a more open final, but uh, I expect that we can go to the finish line with uh, a small group, yeah. Well, that was first another bit of canned Rob Hatch, and then our race leader and stage winner today, Remco Evenepoel. Speaking this morning in Trujillo, talking about how he was intending to enjoy the rest of the world as much as possible. And then we heard him talk about this, what he got a long final, basically meaning that the race was going to come alive pretty early today. And I don't know how long that final, you know, you would define that final as being. It was probably an hour or so, wasn't it, Larry, when it was pretty much full gas racing um, before the kind of coup de grace which... Remco applied with that sprint um, to win on the Alto del Piornal. Yeah, I mean, I'd even say it started a bit earlier with Almeida. You know, he he teched pretty far out, and and they had to go. You know, when they were keeping him within a minute for however many k it was, like fifty k or even longer. Um, that's not easy because I'm sure he was going as hard as he could go, so they were going as hard as they could behind. And uh, so I, I would say that was like, yeah, the whole last majority of the race uh, was could be considered, you know, ridden like a final because uh, I'm sure everyone was full gas in those groups. Did you chaps notice that Almeida, did he launch his attack on the climb or was it just before? Anyways, the Alto de la Desespera which, um, well, it's not quite, it doesn't quite mean the mountain of despair or the mountain of kind of hopelessness, but, but very nearly. And I suppose it looked like a bit of a, well, it looked like a bit of an optimistic move, but the, what do you chaps think of, I mean, Larry, how many times in races have you been in teams when they have tried this tactic of sending what we call satellite riders now down the road and it's actually worked? Because, I mean, these these divide opinions, these moves, this tactic, because it is quite rare that the timing works out and the guy that you want to be down the road is is where you want him to be. I mean, Mark Soleris, I would suggest he's probably the perfect guy to have 
um, to pull in a in a valley for or pull up a climb for I don't know and um, ten or twenty kilometers. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was just getting reflections of the the movie star documentary when he was waiting, you know, and uh, there was a moment where like. Almeida was like yelling in the radio to see to be like I'm right behind you or something uh, just as he was about to catch him but mm. but yeah I mean I don't know you know I don't know if I've ever really been in a team that's like made some elaborate crazy plan like that a lot of times you'll be like hey let's send some guys in the breakaway so that they can get an advance you know maybe help uh, like the GC guy if they need but I mean whether it's like super effective or not I think it's just it's kind of cool to see, you know, like it's a pretty sweet plan, you know, like, like, I mean, it might be like a little bit extra and over the top, but, uh, but I mean, you know, it can definitely help. Like, uh, if you have really, you know, strong guys in between, um, it can definitely make a difference, you know, uh, I mean, just having, you know, yeah, was it, yeah, no, it was earlier, even today. I mean, okay, for example, it wasn't at the front of the race, but um, there was this point where Carlos Rodriguez got dropped and then um, Ben Turner, like, you know, brought the group back uh, on sort of a flat over the top of the climb. And like, you know, so there are these sections where it really, really can help to have a teammate. If you're on a climb that's like of a decent steepness, I don't think it helps that much. But uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely doesn't hurt to have your teammates up the road. So uh, I, I thought it was a cool tactic. And I mean, he was throwing a Hail Mary anyway, so uh, it was just cool to see him try. And, uh, yeah, sorry for the American football reference, but, you know, uh, yeah, I, it was, I thought it was a good, good thing to watch. It was pretty cool. This is something that, that um, a lot of the experts that I work with often allude to. I mean, I guess it, it could help, even if you can't pull anybody or give anybody a turn, if you're there to give a bead on, if you're there to, to give a wheel, if you have a puncture, helping the mechanical, surely that's worth the Hail Mary as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. But I think the thing is, is if you get a flat in that situation, you're pretty much done anyway. You know, like at that point, you might as well just wait for the car and give up. Uh, you, you, do you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> if you don't have more than a minute uh, and the car's not behind you, you're going to lose that much time just fiddling around with, you know, bikes and mechanical changes. So, um, yeah, any help that like a teammate can give is good. But I think in that situation, you know, you're really looking for like a guy who can pull on the valley in between and, and you know, that, that can make a big difference. Um, but yeah, like on an uphill, especially if it's steep, it's probably not going to make like a massive difference. I mean, Almeida said they tried to do some damage and they had managed to do some damage. I don't know whether there he was alluding to what's to come and the fact that, as you say, Larry, it was a well, it was probably two hours of intense racing, and there will be guys who will suffer in the next couple of days. And uh, you could argue that, well, if Carlos Rodriguez had he if he lost time today, which he did, um, and he drifted further away from Juan Ayuso, I mean, that was entirely due to the crash. And in fact, he did brilliantly, I thought, to ride or to get as close to Superman Lopez and Ayuso as he did. I think maybe the more difficult days for for him are still to come. I mean, we discussed it, I think, already, Larry. Or no, that was actually with Dan Martin a few days ago. Um, the issue of crashing and the worst day often being the, the second day after the crash. Is that your experience? Yeah, it kind of depends on the crash, I guess. Like, I guess the difference is, I think sometimes it's worse if you're not riding. So, 
you know, like if you just totally stop, say you crash in a race and you stop the race, two days later is definitely worse. But I think that can also be because you're not moving, you know, like it's kind of like you just sit around and then, uh, you know, you don't have the blood flow and doesn't get everything moving. Whereas like sometimes in the race, I feel like, uh, yeah, right. You know, right after you crash, surely it doesn't hurt because you have all the adrenaline. But then like the day after can be bad but then maybe two days later i feel like you're starting to get better because you're already getting like the blood flow and the recovery so maybe i have a slightly different opinion but uh but yeah um we'll see i guess tomorrow could be uh something interesting to watch but it might not be like the craziest hardest stage of the race so he might be lucky <laughs> well chaps i did say a few days ago that there was blood in the water and in fact today we did, we saw the, the shark himself circling at one point didn't we or certainly trying to help miguel angel lopez um or chase down almeida and doing a pretty decent job they got him back eventually but as far as remco is concerned well whatever difficulty he had Last weekend in Andalusia, it seems to be a distant memory now because he looks back to well the the form that he was in at the start of the Vuelta. Um, he looks extremely fresh. He sounds extremely fresh, and it's very very difficult now to see how he's not going to win this Vuelta Espana. Would you agree? I definitely agree. Yeah, I mean uh, now he looks super strong. So um, maybe he showed a moment of faiblesse uh, a couple you know days ago, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, look at look at you bringing all look at you bringing all the Villefranche from yeah, their local exactly, vernacular. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, nah, he looks he looks super strong today. And uh, the only thing that was like a little bit of a question was his team because he was pretty thin on teammates for a while. But uh, I think with all the other guys having teammates around and being close together on GC, uh, that's going to save him. I mean, I love the idea, chaps, of this on Saturday in the Sierra de Guadarrama. It has played host to lots of sort of fantastic finales in the Vuelta, penultimate stages in particular where the Vuelta has been decided or turned on its head. And, uh, you know, it's, it's given rise to all these legendary stories about Vuelters of yore. I would love to think that we would have a fantastic day with, uh, you know, people attacking from the first climb. There's a climb very early on uh, Saturday. And we would have some suspense. And we would have moments where we think the, that maybe Enric Mass is going to turn this race on its head. I just can't see it. I mean, Mass put in a good attack on the final climb. It was a, an attack with conviction. And certainly in his words, in his interviews, he sounds like a man who's not resigned to second place. However, I just cannot see how he's going to dethrone Remco at this point. What do you think, Rob? I think we're seeing an Emmerich Mass that we've not seen before in terms of his confidence, the way he's talking, as you've just alluded to. We know that Movistar have the strongest team when you certainly compare it to, to what they're up against in, in Quickstep Alva Vinyl. Again, that's no disrespect to the Belgian team, but of course their number's down. Movistar have all the experience. We're gonna, don't, worry, don't worry, Rob. We're, don't worry, Rob. We're going to upset a few more Belgians in just a minute. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I'm going to struggle on. to get the visa to get in for the next race, uh, next time the Classics come around. But no, I think Remco Evenepoel's dealing with it fantastically well. And, and I think I was very much in in the camp that you alluded to, the, the blood in the water camp. I, I had a conversation with a couple of colleagues and you know I thought that Roglic was going to do the deed and, and turn it around. But I'm not sure that Emmerich Mas can. I know he will try. Movistar have to try, surely. I mean, again, they're in this fantastic, fantastic position in the Welter, just like they were 12 months ago. But we saw how it unraveled with Superman and everything like that. 
Um, Mass is their man. He has the people to work for him. A strong Verona, a Balverde who's not looking as strong as perhaps we've seen him. But remember, it's his last ever mountain stage of a Grand Tour on Saturday. Surely, surely, if there is something to be dug deep and found, he will find it. And they've got to try, haven't they? They're trying to stay up. They're in that final relegation place. They're yeah, bottom that's... of the league at the minute. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to say, to me, that's the one thing that's going to keep them from doing anything crazy is because yeah. they really, really need Moss to get these points. You know, like, Moss will save Movistar from getting relegated with his second place. And to me, like, that's just, like, a risk. You know, like, they're not... I don't think they're going to, like, be willing to take is to give up, like, you know, like, do something so crazy to try to win the Vuelta, but risk losing second place because they really, really need this second place. So, um, I don't know. I just worry that that's going to kind of, like... Uh, hamper the uh, aggressiveness. There'll be no Hail Mary. No. There'll be no Hail Mary or even Ave Maria from them, <laughs> I don't think, will there? Um, chaps, uh, I said we we're going to upset a few more Belgians. Actually, I'm not going to take responsibility responsibility for this. This information comes from a Belgian colleague, so this is sort of... Um, this is self-harm, um, patriotic <laughs> yeah. self-harm from uh, Jan-Peter de Vliga of Het Newsblad. I believe he spent yesterday with Remco's parents. Um, they ha- are here on the Vuelta España. They tend to park at the bottom of the final climb every day and walk up to the top. But they are having a great time, a great holiday. And I think this was in Het Newsblad this morning. If not, um, it will be in the next couple of days. Apparently, Remco was texting Wout van Aert congratulations at regular intervals during the Tour de France and he never got a reply this is according to Remco's parents and um, and Remco hasn't had a single text from Wout van Aert during the Vuelta and what do you make of that? Maybe they're thinking about what happened in the World Championships last year just a little bit of speculation Maybe he just thinks it's spam you know (laughs) <laughs> he just he just deleted the number and he thinks it's spam straight to his junk messages <laughs> yeah I think we need more information. We need to go more forensic on this. I'd like to know whether he's even whether Wout van Aert even blue ticked him during the Tour de France. Yeah. Um, that would be maybe a real, he has that a blue be a ticks snub, turned off. Though, you know? He seems like the kind of guy who might uh, might not leave that on. <laughs> so, all seriousness, today was another huge step forward, wasn't it, for for Remco Evenepoel? Probably the biggest in his career, I'd say, winning a a big uphill finish of a Grand Tour for the first time. He's had a couple of those this year. Of course, he won Liège. He took the red jersey in that first Grand Tour station. But I would say that today's probably the biggest day of his career. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, just on the the course and the absence of Primoz Roglic, driving up these final climbs both yesterday and today, you couldn't help feeling that they were ripe for, they were perfect for Roglification and they would have suited him down to the ground. I, I, I feel like today, that's what I thought about. I was like, wow, okay, even if Roglic was here, I think he would have crushed, I think Remco would have crushed him. Like, when you saw him attack, yeah, he I mean, was today, like full sprint, you know? I, I don't know, to me, it, it really impressed yeah, me. Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know. When I watched I just, today, I was just like, wow, I don't think even uh, Roglic could have uh, beaten him, you know? But yeah, you keep going. Sorry. I mean, I just thought based on the way that, well, based on the way that Roglic attacked in, um, in Tomares on, when was that? That was Tuesday. Um, it looked like vintage Roglic. And yesterday, had we had vintage Roglic, I thought that possibly he could have he could have put some daylight between himself and the other favourites and got a time bonus. 
potentially if the team had ridden for that. And then today again, as it happened, everything came back together and he could possibly have got another time bonus today. But, you know, if my aunt had wheels, she would be a wheelbarrow, as the Italians say. <laughs> Chaps, um, in a change to the normal running of things the, the, and the advertised programme of events, um, we're going to have the Encuentro del Día now because the Encuentro del Día relates to Remco Avenapol. Yesterday, I spoke to his coach, Kern Pilgrim, at a very noisy start. Where were we yesterday morning? Someone will have to help me. Um, the day Sevilla? Blur. Sevilla, um, we were close to Sevilla, Aracena, um, that's where we were, I spoke to Kern Pilgrim is his name and he is the subject of today's El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day Okay, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, how far do you go back with Remco? Uh, since the year before he came to the team I think the first time we saw him was in 17 when he just started racing. Um, and then our scout uh, saw him in a race in Spain. And then he sent us, uh, he sent, uh, he sent him to the lab for, for testing. And that was uh, the first time we, we got to know him. Tell me about that first test. Yeah, it was nice. It was uh, like a young kid, uh, just curious to, to see what, uh, uh, what everything was. The test was good, of course. I mean, he, he already had talent. Uh, How good was it? Oh, what's good was not that you could immediately say, like, this is something, like, extraordinary that we've never seen before. I mean, like, in the lab we test, uh, there have been many big talents already uh, in the past. But back then, he was already, he was only just racing, racing for a month or something. Um, but with that, uh, with that in mind, it was it was really good. Yeah. When people talk about what is extraordinary about Remco, I suppose the aerodynamic, the CDA is one thing. I mean, what are the other standout characteristics that he has? Well, yeah, it's uh, like if you if you want to be good in the Grand Tour, you need to be able to, to push a lot of watts per kilo. And it's not just aerodynamics. I mean, otherwise he could not do what he does on steep climbs. So, like the engine he has is is big. Um, you could yeah, you could see already also in San Sebastian how fast he went up to uh, up, up that steep climb. Um, and you see that yeah you saw that again here. Yeah. So when you started making a plan for this Vuelta España, I know he was at the hotel in Calpe or Denia for a long time at the Altitude Hotel. But talk to me a bit about the plan. What did you think he needed to improve and needed to really focus on over those two months before the Vuelta? Yeah, he needed to have like a a very good base in order to be very stable to be able to perform uh, well for three weeks um, yeah, and there were a few a uh, few things we we learned from uh, like a tour of Norway was really good uh, but then two weeks later in Swiss so three weeks later was was already a bit uh, a bit less I think there also the the heat was a big problem for him uh, it was not very well adapted to the heat and that was the first real heat of the season uh, they really suffered a lot, um, so that also made that we wanted to focus extra, extra on that. Um, so first, after doing the altitude in Livigno, like in the last part towards the Volta, yeah, we knew it didn't need much racing to be really good. That's what we saw in Norway. Um, so we really wanted to focus on uh, like training in, in the heat and getting used to these temperatures. The big doubt was obviously the three weeks, and well, the, the journalists' big doubt was the, the three weeks. Um, did you have the same doubts? 
for us was also a question mark. I mean, we never, we never, he never did it before. So yeah, of course, last year in the Giro was not a that didn't went very well. Uh, like he, he started pretty good, but it didn't last for for long. But we also knew that that was a very different approach. Uh, but yeah, it was a question mark also for us. It's gone well so far. Thanks, Ken. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. Thank you very much to Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, of course. Uh, this is Lionel again, just to tell you about our clothing partnership with MAP. Not long to wait now before the cycling podcast collection is available. Should be available worldwide on September the 20th. And of course, that is... Uh, including the dot cycling jersey which is inspired by the kind of late 80s cycling jersey design it was the clear winner in our listener poll during the tour de france and it will be complemented with some matching bib shorts there's also a casquette a bidon and some socks and the whole collection will be available to buy from map.cc on september the 20th or thereabouts Very much looking forward to getting hold of my jersey, hoping that it will turn up in time for my trip around Scotland, the northern half of our Tour de Cosse, visiting all of the Scottish Football League grounds on two wheels. That's Simon Gill and I setting off in a couple of weeks' time. And, well, I'll be taking a range of my map clothing, preparing for all weathers, really. So I'll be taking some of the thermal clothing as well, the thermal bib tights and the thermal jacket, because, well, you never know, late September in Scotland, the weather could throw absolutely anything at us. And if you go to map.cc, you'll see that they have clothing for all conditions. So check out the website and see what takes your fancy. El ritmo de la vuelta. Rhythm of the Vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily excuse to fandango into the night, our pulses racing, shoulders shimming, soul vibrating, medallion swinging, glow sticks bobbing, unzipped shirt flapping in the wind a la Iban Mayo circa the summer of 2003 as we reacquaint ourselves with the floor fillers and disco liquidators that have provided the official anthems of the Vuelta a España going back to... 1978. I mentioned medallions there. That was inspired by uh, Juan Ayusa. I didn't even mention the fact, and the listeners heard it, that I'd asked him about this huge medallion that he has swinging from his neck. He said it, it was gifted to him by his grandmother when he was born, and he's worn it ever since. So anyway, this is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, and our medallions are swinging. Today, chaps, let's meet up in, let's all meet up in the year 2000. Won't it be strange when we're all fully grown? Rob Hatch, where does that come from? Sheffield, Pulp. I was there on my holidays last week. <laughs> More your kind of music than mine. Anyway, 2000. Why this edition? Well, I was thinking about the Cherry Link. And the best I could come up with was that in the year 2000, a rider called Cherry Tree, uh, Francisco Cerezo of 
Vitalicio Seguros briefly became famous or infamous for getting decked, literally punched, by the normally peace-loving um, Maria Cipollini. Uh, Cerezo's crime having sworn at Cipollini twice for nothing, Cipollini was caught on camera saying. And while Cerezo sat on a curbside getting medical attention, a bloody bandage over his left eye. Chippo was duly kicked out of the welter um, later that day. I actually spoke to Victor Hugo Peña this afternoon, who was uh, Cerezo's teammate at Vitalicio Seguros in that Vuelta uh, España. And he confirmed that, uh, yeah, Chippo had given him a right hook. 2000 Welter. The sky doesn't understand. El cielo no entiende. They were not... The Lion King's words, they were not Cipollini's words upon leaving the welter, but the name of that year's official song. It was sung by OBK, an electro-pop duo from Malaga and Barcelona, consisting of Miguel Aroña and, or sorry, Arjona and uh, Jordi Sanchez. They were united by their love of Depeche Mode, among other bands, and they were one of the most popular acts in Spain in the 1990s, several of their albums going platinum. The race to which they provided the soundtrack began in Malaga on the 26th of August with a time trial won by one of the favourites for overall victory, Alex Sula. Reigning world champion and yoghurt fiend, see or listen to Saturday's episode for more on that. Um, Oscar Freire won two stages in the first week while the reigning Vuelta champion, Jan Ulrich, pulled out. Sula remained in the gold jersey until Abraham Alano took it off him in the second TT of the race in Tarragona. But Alano too would soon show his limitations in the mountains. The key stage as had often been the case since the climb's premiere in 1983, went to the Lagos de Covadonga. Rob Hatch went to the Lagos de Covadonga a few days ago. More on that in a second. The 26-year-old Heras was the winner of that stage, and Heras was also the champion-elect. He won again on the Alto de Avantos, that's also in the Sierra de Guadarrama, as, as we talked about earlier, on the penultimate day to seal what would be the first of his four Vuelta titles, the last one in 2005 initially, um, was struck off due to a positive test for EPO, only to be restored to him on appeal years later. Wow, mm. that was long. Rob Hatch, Covadonga, how was it? What a place. What a place. Lagos de Covadonga. Um, ridiculously green. Of course, changing my imagination of all that is Spain, given the fact that I've, I've always either lived on the island or in the south. Uh, I don't really know northern Spain too well, apart from a few trips for work and things like that. But absolutely stunning up the top in terms of the climb to get there i'm glad i wasn't on my bike let's just put it that way because it is absolutely horrible i have but you know what's the worst part about lagos de covadonga is like there's this downhill pronouncing it uh, one of your mates ian boswell calls it the lagos of cowabunga but anyway <laughs> that's funny the, the, you were saying yeah, Larry, but, sorry yeah, one of saying. the worst parts about the climb is that like there's a downhill in the middle you know, and it's maybe like a K long or something like that, or it's near the top. All the buses have to park at the bottom of the climb. And so <laughs> to go back to the buses, it's not like you just descend. You've done this huge climb, but you have to go back up this steep uphill that's at least a K long to get back down to the buses. And yeah, when I, if I recall correctly, it was just this big fight to hang on to any motorbike you could to go back to, not in the race, but like after the race. To go back to the buses, everyone was trying to like hang on to whatever they could to get up this, you know, 1K uh, bump after, after the climb because uh, everyone was just dead from, from the rest of the day. But, but yeah, that's my, my, the most, like the most, uh, the thing I remember the most about the Lagos de Covadonga. Bless the view. 
<laughs> well, Larry, it's not all it's not all medallions, chest hair and glamour in the world no. tour, is it? Um life is not always glamorous as a world tour professional. Um today, chaps, well, we saw several crashes which illustrated that uh, one of them affected Jay Vine actually put him out of the race. He was the the king of the mountains elect, um, double stage winner, of course, and well, we wish him well in his recovery. Um, on the, the the lack of glamour in professional cycling in the World Tour, we've already heard Jay Vine early in the World Tour talk about how well, one of the nice things about his first stage win was the bonus that he was going to get. Um, we spoke to him this morning in Trujillo about the significance for him of being king of the mountains in the Vuelta a España, and here's what he said. How much motivation is it when you're in that jersey and what's the meaning of the mountains classification for you? I think there's 13 grand on uh, in the meaning, in the prize money. Um, that's that's a start, but also, I mean, for the team, I think it'll be the first jersey we actually take home at the end of a Grand Tour, so it's pretty special for a, a pro-continental team. I mean, considering the Tour de France, the yellow jersey has taken away the polka dots in the last two years, so maybe even three years, so yeah, it's it's pretty special. And as clarification, a lot of people don't know, how does that prize money get worked out? You say 13 grand, but it gets split among all the teammates, all the staff. Well, 20% disappears straight away. Race organisers, uh, the Spanish Federation, the anti-doping, so 20% disappears straight away. And then it's divided uh, through taxes as well. I get taxed on it. And then uh, finally it gets divided nine ways eight ways with the riders and then uh, another way with the staff because obviously we've got 20 20 staff 20 odd staff here as well so they deserve a bit of a cut as well so that's how it gets divided up jay we love your honesty about money you're the only guy who ever who has ever spoken about it in here oh okay well i've got to live somehow don't i <laughs> exactly Thomas De Gent, for example, he's one guy who actually has spoken about it, and he says that it's a big motivation also to win money for the rest of the team. Um, it, when he gets in breakaways, when he goes for sprint prizes, he's also thinking of that. Are you? No, no, not not thinking about like the prize money. That's a, sort of a byproduct. I think that just comes with the sport. But I mean, yes, it's a it's a big part of it's a big part of how we're able to do our jobs. Like. I, I had to actually pay to do my sport in Australia. Now I don't. So pretty nice uh, nice to be able to do that. And also have a life outside of cycling because at the end of the day, at the end of this Volta, I'm not going to be watching a bike race for a good long while. So I want to be able to do something else with my life, you know, and st- life isn't free. So, chaps, that was Jay Vine this morning talking about the intricacies of prize money and, well, that 13,000 euro bonus. I think it's 13,000 euros. I haven't checked either, which may well now go to Richard Carapaz because he is in the King of the Mountains jersey tonight. Larry, uh, prize money figure high on or highly on your list of priorities when you go racing? Yeah, pretty much uh, not at all, unfortunately. Um, It's funny because, actually, I was talking with... uh, a race car driver um yesterday about prize you know i was like we were talking about our different sports and he asked about prize money and i actually said you know that for the most part it's kind of a joke because uh i mean by the time it gets to you as a rider it's like already been taxed split a million ways taxed again and then maybe split again so like you know say if uh yeah, if the mountains jersey is 13,000 euros, by the time 
it would get to Jay Vine, you know, after all everything, you know, maybe it'd be like, I don't even know if he'd see 500 euros. Um, yeah, it, oh, like wow. it really reduces significantly. Um, so, you know, it's like if guys are winning grand tours, if you're on a team that's winning grand tours, winning a lot of stages, um, you know, I'm sure the guys on UAE, they're getting like a nice chunk of prize money, like actually a significant amount. But I would say for the rest of us, it's really not very much. So I never count on prize money or, you know, expect to get much of it. And uh, when we do get it at the end of the year, I'm just like, oh, that's a nice surprise. You know, like maybe you have a little extra spending money, but but it's not like, uh, yeah, it's a fraction. This is a bit like when you get this is what like when you get this royalty check for sort of the Romanian translation of a book you <laughs> yeah. wrote eighteen years ago, um, which I you know still nice. happens. You know I still yeah. get the checks for one euro twenty three yeah. every oh, six damn. months. Um, that does I suppose shine a bit of a light on how unglamorous things can be in the world tour at times. Larry, at this time of year, um, precisely that point or how difficult life can be in the sports top tier is brought home to well there's a certain tier there's a certain category of rider particularly at the Vuelta a España who is staring down the barrel of well, a contractless winter uh, a winter or an autumn at least and during which they and their agents will have to find employment for next year there are a lot of riders at this Vuelta a España who haven't got contracts currently for next year um, Jan Bakelens was one um, a, a Belgian colleague told me this afternoon and well another one is Alessandro De Marchi of Israel Premier Tech a Vuelta, former Vuelta stage winner I spoke to Alessandro this morning about how he envisages the coming winter and let's just hear a little bit of Alessandro in Italian and I'll summarise afterwards Cambierò qualcosina nella preparazione cercherò di aggiornarmi anch'io e rimanere un po' al passo coi tempi e tutto questo ovviamente viene dopo aver trovato un contratto perché in questo momento siamo ancora alla ricerca di un, di un posto e, e quindi eh, well, that was De Marchi talking about, well, first of all, how he intends to sort of um, reinvent his training over the winter, seeing the likes of Pogacar, Avonapool and lots of other young riders thrive, has given him food for thought and he's going to make some changes to his training. But he says the biggest priority at the moment is finding employment for next year. I also spoke to his agent, uh, Raimondo Shimone, later in the afternoon and he said there are, there are a few options on the table but uh, well including the possibility of renewing with Israel Premier Tech but but nothing nothing concrete um, nothing they can really hang their hat on at the moment and uh, Alessandro did talk about how unpleasant it is riding with that pressure um, particularly at the Vuelta a España knowing that you know every well your your future could hinge on every break that you do or don't make Larry, I believe you have had this experience as well at the Vuelta España. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I had it actually a couple of years. So um, <clears throat> actually, most of the times I did the Vuelta, I think I almost didn't have a contract signed for the next year. So it definitely um, weighs heavy on your shoulders and it can be really stressful. Um, the one thing is I found that I dealt quite well with that stress and I think it actually pushed me maybe to be a bit better. Not not that I enjoyed it, but uh, 
you know, I, I think it uh, motivated me as a rider um, just because you had so much on the line. And to be honest, it really surprises me that uh, a guy like um, DeMarkey would not have a contract yet because, like, at least for quite a number of years, I feel like he was a pretty sought-after rider in terms of, like, a breakaway guy who can really convert those into wins. Um, so maybe it's more of a sticking over the number on the contract than it is actually finding a contract. I don't know. What I've heard a lot over the last couple of years, and I've heard from a few agents this year as well, is that well, they talk about the, the kind of opportunity cost of taking a ride like Demarki. They've had their heads turned. A lot of teams have had their heads turned by the success of oh, these 100%. very young riders. And they, yeah, and they... They would rather take a neopro or even a 19 or 20 year old in some cases, not in less in expectation than in the hope that they could unearth a diamond, and and I think that's where guys like Demarki are suffering. Uh, I can see that for you know a lot of guys. I just thought you know he's won quite a lot of races, so I I wouldn't have assumed that that would even be the case with him. But but yeah, it's it's definitely crazy. You know, you know I've I've had friends who they've had like their best seasons ever. And uh, if they're like 30 years old, uh, it's really hard to find a contract. Uh, and, you know, guys who win big races and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's tough. Uh, but, but, yeah, I guess that's just kind of what we're seeing now in the sport. And, you know, it's also evidenced when you look at the top five of the Vuelta. Like, uh, there's a lot of really young guys in there. So I can see why teams are moving in that direction. Um, but, yeah, it's it's hard. So... I, I definitely know what uh, Alessandro is going through. I, I experienced that like quite a few times. Um, but uh, there's no better place to showcase yourself than at a Grand Tour like the Vuelta, which is, you know, you can see everywhere. In those two cases, Larry, did your performances at the Vuelta end up helping? Yeah, definitely. One year it was like um, I was in the Vuelta. I was negotiating with one team, but then I had a really good performance uh, at that Vuelta. And then it like... Um, led me to get a significantly better offer from the team that I was still with. And then, um, no, actually, the year after, it didn't actually help. Uh, now that I think about it, I had probably, like, I had a really good performance in the Vuelta, and I was in a bunch of breakaways, and I had a few good results. Um, and, yeah, actually, now that I think about it, I actually didn't get a contract uh, until, that was, like, the year I went to Aqua Blue after. So 2016, uh, I had a really good Vuelta. And uh, in the end, it, it got me some interest. That was, that was when you were at I Am. I was on I Am, yeah. And the, the team was uh, folding at the end of the year. And it definitely led to... I had talks with quite a few teams um, after that Vuelta or during. One by one, they all kind of like slowly fell apart or fell through the cracks somehow. And then uh, yeah, it wasn't until even after Lombardia that year that I signed with Aqua Blue. So uh, that one was actually really, really touch and go. So... Was that paradoxically almost helpful that IAM was disbanding, was folding, because then there was an understanding for the fact that maybe the, the riders, who you were all in that position, or a lot of you were in that position, um, that you would not do your own thing, but you did have to think about yourself and your own future, um, rather than whatever specific team goals you may have had. Was that that Vuelta, we didn't really have like necessarily a big leader, um, so we were kind of going for stage wins anyway. So at the, it didn't really make a big difference. But yeah, in the end, we, we won two stages at that Vuelta. Uh, one with Matthias Frank and another with uh, Jonas van Genechten. 
And we, you know, had a lot of other, like, really good, you know, like, rides out of the breakaways and top tens and stuff. And, uh, yeah, um, I definitely think the the worry of the team folding and guys, you know, not having jobs for the following year made everyone kind of step up a level. Um, and, you know, it's even something I've seen, you know, I, I've looked... I feel like with Movistar right now, it's not exactly the same because they're trying to save their own team. But, uh, you know, that stress, that pressure of potentially losing um, their license, it's like Movistar is crushing it now, you know, on like in a lot of races. So and, and you see that with actually a lot of these teams that are fighting relegation. It seems like a lot of them are like outperforming their normal selves because, yeah, there's just that pressure on them. So. Um, while pressure can be really hard to deal with, I think sometimes it can, um, you know, lead to positive results. Guys, just to flesh out that little chat about the youth and the, the changing dynamics, everybody's heads have been turned. Daniel, you know this, having all the, the sort of mailing lists of all the teams. Every email at the minute that seems to come through seems to be a link up with a cycling club, a link up with a development team. Teams mm. are looking at this. And if you look at the current GC of the Vuelta, Top seven, there's nobody older than 28. Lopez wow. is 28. Mass is 27. Remco is 22 leading. And Juan Ayuso is still a teenager. Juan Ayuso is in a similar to position that uh, Tadej Pogacar was in, albeit Pogacar was a year older when he had that brilliant well to finish third. He obviously won stages. Ayuso hasn't done that yet, but bear in mind he's a year younger. Um, there has been a big, big change. And for, for Alessandro, the Marquis, he's not had the best season of his career this year. But last year, let's not forget, he had a brilliant year, didn't he? He wore the pink jersey before that really unfortunate crash at the Giro d'Italia and then went on to win Trevali Varesini. So it suggests that there's uh, still something left for the now 36-year-old from Friuli. The, the marketplace is, well, the market is always very fickle, isn't it? And, uh, you know, that was one of the frustrations of his agent today. As I said, I was speaking to Raimondo Shimone, Alessandro's agent. And he's got several riders whose seasons and whose last two seasons have been really badly affected by COVID. And Alessandro in the Marquis season has been badly affected by COVID. But there are other riders. And Matteo Fabro is another one who um, Raimondo said has just not managed to, he hasn't just never found his best form again having suffered covid earlier in the year and and the timing of your good performances is key you know and the fact that larry you're saying the welter is very important it illustrates that this is the time this is the window particularly for those older riders i think you know what i'm hearing from agents is that the teams are moving quickly to sign those long contracts with the very promising very sought after young riders but they are willing to leave it a lot later for the the, the post 30 year olds you know then it's sort of september october and then you know with the recency bias of having just seen the welter the performances that will be foremost um in their mind will be will be the ones riders are producing at this time of year not what they did in march or february or in september of last year Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for their long-term support of the cycling podcast. Everyone can get 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. As we heard from Sam Brand earlier in today's episode, his golden rule for fueling was not to suddenly try something different 
on race day and I think that's one thing that I've learned about fueling over the years is to embed your fueling strategy in training and then when you're doing your event whether it's a sportive or a race you're used to the uh, types of energy food that you're eating and you know how your body is going to respond to them. You don't want to suddenly switch something. Even changing flavour of gel can be a little bit disconcerting on race day. So uh, train for your event and that includes your fueling. That discount code again for Science in Sport is SISCP25. Etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, chaps, the cena de ayer, we were in Merida. Uh, who knows? Well, I'm not going to introduce our fourth, fourth guest, no, third guest of the night. Who, Rob Patch, have you ever been to Merida? I've never been to Merida. Uh, I have been to where we're going to have the stage tomorrow. Ah. Merida, home of the of Spain's best preserved Roman remains. There's an amphitheater. There's, there are temples. There's a fantastic bridge. It was extremely beautiful, and I would recommend a visit. But dinner last night, and how did I fare on the well typical Extremaduran cuisine front? Not too bad. I had a salteado de bolletos y alcachofas for a starter. Um, I'm going to introduce our last guest at this point because he's going to explain what that is. Fran Reyes. Um, there'll be some wistful gazing in a minute, but in the meantime, could you just tell us about the salteado that I ate? Okay, I will, I will hold my wistfulness for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, bolletos are quite common here in Extremadura it's because m- mushrooms. Well, mushrooms, yeah. Exactly. It's the, a particular type of mushroom. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and this, uh, well... Uh, Extremadura is particularly well known because of their dehesas, which is a vast extension extension of flatlands on which uh, uh, pigs are, are around digging for mushrooms, and particularly boletus are some of the most appreciated by pigs and also by humans. Yes, they were. They were very good. <laughs> and alcachofas are artichokes. Artichokes. I was discussed mm. the other day. Alcachofa is another word that comes from Arabic. Um, another of the legacies of the Muslims and the several hundred years that they spent in the south of Spain. Uh, I think Rob Hatch is going to present the stage that we've got coming tomorrow. It's an interesting one that starts and finishes in the same place. Rob Hatch, over to you. Lots of words of Arabic origin and Spanish language. Before I get onto that, I'm going to leave you one of the most beautiful. Ojalá. Uh. I wish, I hope. And it comes from the Arabic inshallah or inshallah, which I'm not sure a lot of you are familiar with. So a uh, big part of the Spanish language, ojalá, coming from the Al-Andalus days. Yeah. Tomorrow, though, we go further north, away from Extremadura and Andalusia, and we're going into Castilla-La Mancha, the home of great Spanish stories. Uh, Talavera de la Reina is the start and finish town. It's a very, very short day. 138 kilometers, I think, something like that. 138.3, to be precise. Two big second category climbs, bonus points, bonus seconds, rather, and an intermediate sprint at the foot of the second ascension of the Puerto del Pielago. And then a big descent all the way into the finish. I'm not sure, Larry, what we might expect, but it's an interesting profile, given the fact that it's loop stage up the same mountain twice. The first mountain's climbed, the first climb begins after just 11 kilometres, so it could be an interesting day. 
What's going to happen, Larry? Yeah, I was going to say, well, definitely going to be an interesting day. You know, I I am feeling like it could be a Lawson-Cratic victory. Uh, you know, he's been pretty strong throughout this Vuelta. He was so strong the other day. And if he has any matches left, I think it's kind of the perfect stage for him because he showed he's strong on the climbs, but he's just not as light as some of the other guys. And he's, like, got a ton of power on the flat. So I think for a final like tomorrow, if he can get away... I don't think anyone could bring him back. Um, so yeah, I think I think it'll be pretty interesting to watch tomorrow. But I definitely think it's a good day for the break. It's interesting, Larry. I spoke to Lawson Craddock again at the finish today because he really seemed exasperated yesterday. He seemed at a loss. He's tried this tactic several times of being in breaks, and not just in this is welter, but in um, welters of your uh, getting in breaks, realizing that there are better climbers than him in those breaks, and trying to anticipate, trying to go early, and it hasn't worked thus far. And last night after the finish, he seemed at the end of his tether. He seemed um, to think that he needed to try something different, try something new. So I asked him after the finish whether he'd done some soul searching last night and and come up with a new method, basically. And, and he seemed to suggest that he hadn't. Um, and I think it comes down to it comes down to luck, doesn't it? It comes down to who yeah. you find yourself with in the break on any given day and how those riders are feeling on that day. Yeah, I mean, I think tomorrow the interesting thing is is the break will almost surely go on the climb because there's only 10k of flat before it starts to go uphill. So in contrast to a day that finishes on a climb and starts on a flat, this will be good for any big rider that can climb. Um, so someone, I mean, he's not, I mean, not big, you know what I mean, like a, a guy who's good on the flat and on the climbs, but uh, not necessarily a pint-sized climber. So um, I don't know. I feel like a guy like Lawson's going to have the legs to get in the break, uh, but I'll have the power to like distance guys on the flat. It'll just be, you know, I think it'll come down to like who's watching who and uh, if he can find a little gap to escape. Uh, yeah, I think uh, he could hold on for the win. Fred Wright also wants to win tomorrow, but he wants to win every day. <laughs> he, he's been in more breakaways than in the peloton, hasn't he? He's been in a lot of breaks. I'm not sure he's been in as many as what's the chat from Burgos Biace? Um, Okin, no, no, what's and, it? Uh, Okamika. Okamika. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, he's at the top of the standings when he comes to kilometers within the breakaway. He also has the best name in the world. Um, yeah. Chaps, I forgot to mention <laughs> last night's wine was a Ribera del Guadiana. Not, uh. not a wine I knew particularly well, but it's the. It's the top um, D.O. in Extremadura, um, a tempranillo, a very deep, murky, moody, murky, not really murky, moody Fred, uh, Fred wine. Jesus. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the three weeks of the World Show is starting to get to me. It's a red wine, not a Fred wine, uh, <laughs> but maybe it will be a Fred wine. Maybe we're, that's what we'll be toasting a Fred right victory with tomorrow. Um, it's time for some wistful gazing. Before we do, I was thinking about your wistful reflections last night from because i was sitting in the square in merida after our dinner last night enjoying a non-alcoholic beer i should point out after my dinner watching watching the world go by and there were quite a few people from the vuelta there one of whom was roberto laiseca the basque climber who won a stage in the pyrenees in 2001 and vuelta a España, who i am told by our colleague alistair fotheringham in an interview once listed staring at the sea as one of his passions (laughs) <laughs> wistfully staring at the sea and this made me think of you Fran last night he looked like he was making a beeline for a, a shisha bar 
And we were sitting in, well, there were several bars in the square in Merida. One of them was the Shisha Bar, and Liseka was certainly heading in that direction. Um, Fran, what have you been wistfully gazing at today? Hopefully you've not been thinking about ex-girlfriends again, as you were yesterday. Kind of, kind of. Or is that every day? Yeah, uh, maybe. You know, uh, you say Andero Camiga is the best name on the Vuelta España. Yeah. The winner of the Vuelta Talavera of this year, junior race that was held last week. His name is Estanislao Calabuch. Wow. He comes from Catalo- from the north of Catalonia, and he's going to make it at a pro- as a pro. He has been one of the best juniors of the season. Call the name. It is going to be wor- glorious when he makes it to the pro ranks. That's the, op- <laughs> that's the opposite of wistful, looking into the future, yeah. <laughs> well, looking oh. into your crystal ball. Okay, but looking, looking into the past, you know where we are today? This is the Valle del Gerte, the Gerte Valley. And Don't uh, talk about cherries, we've already done that. Well, I have to speak a bit about cherries <laughs> because one of the one of the trips that my girlfriend always wanted oh to God, do with always, me was yeah, it was to come here and see the blossoming of the cherry trees <laughs> we on month of April. Yeah, I always failed to do that because I was engaged on some bike race, you know. And when we stopped the relationship, it w- there wasn't a possibility anymore to make that dream come true. So, you know, we have to do it in another life. Fran, uh, it's a modern day tragedy and today was a triumph for Remco Evenepoel. I think that's an appropriate moment at which to end this evening's entertainment, (laughs) if you can call it entertainment. Um, I'm gonna thank Larry Warbass. Larry, this is not your last appearance on the podcast this year we're going to have you back at the weekend um, to wrap things up Rob Hatch you might join us again as well um, if we can tie you down at some point we've got I'm not sure who else we've got the weekend I think Brian Nygaard might be coming back oh we've got Nico Van Loy tomorrow um, Spanish journalist and we'll have Fran back for more nostalgic ruminations no no doubt involving ex-girlfriends maybe current girlfriends I don't know Fran it's been a joy as, as always thank you very much Thank you, guys. And, well, listeners, um, you'll hear from me again tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Adios. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.